Welcome to Conversations in Your Coop. I'm your host, Drew Galbraith, and I'm pleased to be uh, joined on this third remote conversation in the Coop by Adam Naylor. Adam, a Trinity graduate, uh, former Bantam athlete, who's since gone on to uh, have a, a really amazing in, in the world of not only sports psychology, but also leadership consulting and, and player development. Adam, thanks so much for joining. And uh, if I might ask, where are you uh, isolating from? Yeah, Drew. Um, hey, thank you so much for having me on. This is an absolute blast. Um, and I obviously adored my time at Trinity. I am, um, I'm isolating up in Hull, Massachusetts, just south of Boston. Um, just hoping for the weather to get a little bit warmer so we can have a few nice walks around the block. But um, I, I can't argue. I live by the beach. Well, and it's a it's a very interesting time, and uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about your Trinity experience and uh, your career arc later. But um, as someone who uh, spends a lot of time communicating with uh, individuals and groups around, you know, their mental process and their mental approach to success, what are some thoughts that you have about this uh, really unprecedented time in in our society's history? Yeah, no, it's really interesting, right? It's um, it's a challenge for us all. I always, I feel like I'm starting up all my calls or Zoom meetings with, "Hey, we're all in the same boat right now," and I think mm-hmm. that's a important reminder, right? Because we are connected and we can help each other out quite a bit. I think I look at it almost on two ends, and as you mentioned, I work a lot with athletes. I also work a lot with leaders. Um, on the athlete end. I've really, I'm almost playing around within my head, this, this three prong approach. I hope athletes are taking a breath and and celebrating their past seasons, especially if they're a college athlete, because they didn't get that formal celebration. So that celebration, what did I learn? You still deserve that, even though it was cut short. Um, the, The second piece I've been sharing with them a lot is this is not a moment for aggressive training, but rather a moment to stay healthy and let yourself be curious and learn something new. I've been getting off calls with athletes who are like, hey, doc, you know, what could I read? What could I do? And then know that there will be a time, we don't know when it is, where you get to dial that aggressive goals back up. But I don't think you want to do it now. I think it's a time of health and curiosity. So that's the athlete side. Um, the leader side, it's really the words tone and tenor have been popping up a lot when I speak with my leaders where it's a moment where almost anyone can lead when things are easy. And I think the best leaders are finding that tone and tenor and figuring out how to help people have authentic connections um, and see the big picture of it. Because I think week one or two of stay at home, everyone was in that alarm stage where it was like, connect, Uh connect, connect, take care of each other. And now it's, what are the right connections and how do we settle into our current normal? Because it's all right to feel like this is a normal for a while. That would be helpful to teams and organizations. Whew, sorry, a little long winded there. No, that's, that's actually, that sets the table really well. And um, when you, I, I think about um, a lot of people like myself who were so into a routine of, um, you know, it's it, and work is so much a part of, of what we do in college athletics, people who are, whether you're a coach um, or an administrator, you're really invested in this in this process in a way that it takes up a lot of nights and weekends. So are you hearing what I'm hearing from a lot of our Trinity coaches and from a lot of people I know in the college sports world, this idea that 
even though I'm not going to the office every day, I feel busier than normal. And it's almost harder to turn things off, even though there's not a lot of timely things going on. Are, are you hearing that from others? Yeah, it's really, I think it's interesting. I think it really varies by industry, but definitely that I feel busier and almost more exhausted. I'm hearing quite a bit. Um, and, and I've likened it to, we didn't realize these micro breaks we used mm-hmm. to take in our day, right? Whether it be walking to the coffee shop, whether it be walking and popping your heads into another coach's office and saying, hi, what's going on? We almost have lost those, right? And we're almost on Zoom meetings all day. Mm-hmm. which is also exhausting, right? Because to connect empathetically over Zoom, we don't realize that we're learning takes a little bit more out of us. So I think people are feeling busy on that end. I think a lot of good leaders and coaches are also appreciating that it is important to find a routine. And when you go from, whether it be in your office, on the road, planning a practice, it's exhausting to find what a new routine is. I'll give kind of a quick example, which yeah. I think is a really yeah. cool one. Um, so I, I was on the phone with, with an NHL coach that I've known for a while last week. And he said, right before everything shut down, I, I was in the hotel room breaking down film, getting guys ready for practice. And now my big concern is, A, are guys connected enough so they can be ready if, when they need to go? But he said, I've realized I need to treat this like a normal work day so I can be healthy. And what he did, which I think is really fascinating, he said, yeah, we have meetings all morning as coaching staff and connect with players, but there's still gaps in my day. And he chose to take this as a moment to continue to educate himself and grow. He actually Mm -hmm. signed up for two online courses, one on leadership and one on building culture. He said, because now that's part of my work day and I find it energizing because I get to learn. And it is different than what I would have been doing if the season was normal, but it allows me to feel normalcy. So I think this healthy routine piece is so critical at this moment for all of us. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Adam Naylor and Adam, a, a Trinity graduate who now has uh, taken his professional career and, and built on that into expertise in the world of sports psychology and uh, leadership consulting. Um, one of the things we talked about, Adam, with our student athletes, who uh, the spring athletes specifically, whose seasons were um, kind of taken away from them just as the season was getting started, was to deal with that grief of, of a lost season. Um, students will have an opportunity, obviously, if they're an underclassman to compete again. Some seniors can come back and compete uh, in an extra uh, spring season if they choose to. But um, what advice have you given your uh, clients and groups you work with around dealing with that grief of a lost season, which is a, it's a pretty unique thing to, to happen in our world. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's, um, I, I like that you, I like and dislike that we're using the term grief, right? It makes a lot of sense because that is what we do in life transitions, right? We go through, some people have said it might be like Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. whatnot. And that makes a lot of sense. And to me, the biggest thing when we think about stages of grief is this is a stage process. So that's what I often say to the athletes and say to the coaches and say to the administrators is at first, right, that first week or two was this stage of alarm where it was high stress. What am I doing? I heard a lot of, will I get my eligibility back? Oh, no, Mm -hmm. the sky was falling. And now that we're kind of in week three, four, five, I'm finding a lot of athletes are kind of settling in to start to reconcile it. And I think that's a really healthy spot to be, to be at the, 
what does this mean? What did I learn stage? And I think we're allowed to sit in that stage for a while. And then I think we're going to get a stage of sadness that comes up. And we would have normally had it from a normal end of a senior year. But now it's going to be a little bit different because it's going to feel like a little bit something was taken. And to me, I think a good, it's about who we surround ourselves with. Mm-hmm. Meaning you don't want to be surrounded by someone that says it, it's no big deal, think positive. But you also don't need to be surrounded by someone that will wallow in it too much. Right. We're going to have to exist in this interesting middle space. And that's a powerful and healthy spot. I think it goes back to when I mentioned great leaders are finding tone and tenor. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be the same thing at this transition moment where it's not the greatest thing in the world that your season ended and it was different and you learned something, but it's also not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. You know, if we can exist in that middle space together, well, we're going to really, you know, you know, we're going to have reasonably positive memories and we're going to appreciate what we did. If that answers your question. It, it certainly does. And, and, uh, it- I, I think about something that I, I used to say before this, and I'm feeling it even more now is um, just getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, a lot of us like to have answers and like to have the predictability of knowing what's happening tonight, next week, and a, and a month down the road. And nobody really has that right now. And I think it does create um, just that that level of of discomfort for a lot of us. And you know, we're, the, the questions we answer uh, right now as a, 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 in a college athletic department is, are we going to have a fall season? Uh, is it going to go back to normal? Yeah. You know, we'd like to think at some point it will, uh, and I really believe it will, but we don't know exactly when. And I think that's a, it's, a, it's a challenge to live in that space, but acknowledging that the space is, it's okay to be in that space is, is an important piece. Yeah. Um, if, if I don't even, if I add to, and I hate to think of it so, so richly, but this is the ultimate test of our mental game, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I can say in, in lesser circumstances, passionate play is we have to learn to sit with uncertainty. Oh my gosh, we're all in the ultimate test of sitting in uncertainty, right? right. You know, right. If, if you're a good athlete, you actually don't know if you're going to win. You think you can, mm-hmm. but you don't get to know till the end of the game. Right. We have the ultimate moment of uncertainty to, to test these really unique social and emotional skills. And I think we'll all thrive together if we, we see that vision. Oh, that's well put. Well, Adam, let's go back to, let's go back to at least the beginning of your, your Trinity days. So um, a very good tennis player at Trinity. You were a team captain, I believe. Um, so talk to me about the point during your Trinity life where you thought, Hmm. Maybe there's a, maybe there's not only a future for me in sport. And I know you were a tennis pro for a little while, but not just in sport, but, but exploring the, the mental side of the game. When did that light bulb go on for you? Well, well, so that's kind of a, a funny question to me because it's, I'm a big loser about what I do. I'm a big geek. You know, I've wanted to, I wanted to do this even before Trinity. And mm-hmm. the beauty of Trinity was it supported my ability to develop this skill set so well. So if I were to tell the, the whole, you know, sad story is um, m- many people in the Trinity community know my father's a minister and mm-hmm. I swear he did all of his counseling on basketball courts or baseball fields. So somehow <laughs> already I was like, apparently that's where you're supposed to spend time connecting with people. Right. And then I grew up and I wasn't allowed to watch TV on school nights unless it was t- unless it was sports. Mm-hmm. And we weren't a sports crazy family, but there was some intrinsic value to sport I was taught. 
And so then I took that and being a tennis player. So I actually was a three sport athlete at Trinity, which kind of still cracks me up to this day. I was a water polo player, a swimmer and a tennis player. And tennis loved sports psychology in the eighties. You know, it was tennis right. and golf. It's the only places mm-hmm. that had it. And mm-hmm. I, I will always say I was a all right athlete, but I think my mental game was pretty good and I loved teaching it. And I got onto the training campus and there were just such tremendous supporters and mentors on this one in the athletic department and outside of it. And, you know, the list is long, right? Swimming. I came to campus because Chet McPhee, mm-hmm. um, God was so, mm-hmm. just such a wonderful human that we still all reflect on. Right. Um, right. Being part of the water polo team, you know, we talk about inclusion these days. I swear what I loved about that team was it was an inclusive team. You know, whatever, co- wherever you're at, you're welcome to be part of that team. And then obviously tennis, I learned so much from Coach Asiante, who is still now a dear friend where, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if many people know he, he is, a, if I got this correct, a master's degree in phys ed and master's degree in psychology. So, right. so what a wonderful right. mentor for me. Um, so that was just in athletics alone. But then in the psych department, you know, I was able to do an independent study on sports psychology my junior year. I actually taught my first collegiate sports psychology class my senior year at Trinity because there's something on the books called student talk course. And to this day, I will say it's the toughest sports psychology class I ever taught because half the room was my buddies. And you never want to have to teach your buddies something that's somewhat serious. So um, it was just this incredible environment that if I said I had an idea that I wanted to explore at every corner of Trinity, it was like, hey, go for it. We'll figure it out. Um, Mm -hmm. and to me, that was really the key. Like, I I can't say the list of names throughout campus was so long that no one told me I was crazy and it seems to have paid off all right because I'm still reasonably employed and have enjoyed this adventure (laughs) so far. And so from, from Trinity, you went straight to BU for grad school, um, where you got your master's and ultimately your, your, uh, doctorate. So how did, um, you know, how did that transition go? Was there, were there points in your time with your, in your graduate work where you, where you ever deviated from the plan or did you kind of get into it and say, this is it. I, you know, I have found my thing and this is what I was meant to do. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure I, I've ever deviated with the plan. Um, at BU, which was a great piece for me was I was able to keep that atmosphere I had at training, I actually just took it to BU because so um, my advisor, there was this gentleman, Len Zykowski. If anyone met him, he's kind of this old, old school guy that it was the same thing. I'd walk into his office. I'd go, hey, hey, Len, I, I got an idea. And he'd go, OK, let's figure out how to do it. Um, he really respected all that I learned at training because it's very rare that you can gain any sort of good sports psychology knowledge as an undergrad. Right. But this but actually through liberal arts, I built a really robust undergrad training in it. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of trust in me when I got there. So I saw that. And then back to the athletic department and Drew, I'm pretty sure you know him well. A good friend and mentor of mine was Bob Dallas. Yeah. So yeah, I, I know Bob really well. Bob yeah. is the women's task coach at Dartmouth. And um, I, I was I was with him for until he left BU, you know, as his intern mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, and the, the big line is, I remember my first year with him, he said, Adam, you're going to sit on my dissertation committee because he also has his doctorate in sports psych. And, mm-hmm. and sure enough, I did sit on his dissertation committee. <laughs> so, so he clearly took his time a little bit getting through it, but I had all these great resources there. Um, yeah. 
I think another piece that added to it is, and anyone that knows me now, I have trouble explaining what I do and who I work with because I'm, as I've said, I'm a job collector, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that liberal background in me that's let me thrive. And there's almost never a dull day. Right. Um, so I hope that answers your question, makes some sense there. It, it absolutely does. And, um, you know, as you've gone through your career, obviously the, um, I think you you said it earlier very well, which is, is sports psychology and maybe the use of mental skills training in sport has exploded from the mid 90s, which was really more around individual sports to now. It's not only in every sport and life, but also has bled its way down to youth sports. So so as that explosion has taken place, what have been the, the areas where you think the the I would say the maybe the the industry of sports psychology is too, a little too heavy handed, but sure. where, where are the areas where you've seen this, this change so dramatically and, and in ways that are interesting to you? Um, I, I guess the, the change it has, it's been a really positive growth. Um, so when I finished up my doctorate, there were really no jobs outside of academia for someone wanting to do sports mm-hmm. psychology or, or no how would I put it? Responsible jobs. Um, <laughs> because it's like, wow, what are you scrounging? What are you doing? And now like major league baseball is the, the largest employer of mental training professionals out there, mm-hmm. um, which is baseball had it in the nineties, but now it's, it's almost a requirement of organization right. for better, or for worse. Um, so I've seen this really positive explosion. I think some of it is because the field has professionalized itself a bit better, mm-hmm. still a long way to go. Um, and I think for people in the know, there's a real understanding that there's not a stigma to mental training. And I use that purposely because I think mental health and mental training are slightly different Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we blur them, it almost stigmatizes mental training, but it's just really what you do to get better. Um, an example of that would be, so one of my, my big clients is Northeastern university Mm -hmm. And they brought me over for men's hockey eight years ago. And that was the only one, right? Because that, that was the, the revenue of the big dogs on mm-hmm. campus. And throughout my time where they were my big focus, three quarters of that team would sit down with me. So clearly we'd gotten to a point where this is just what you do to get better. From mm-hmm. guys going to the NHL to guys that were adjusting to less ice time, we just sit with Adam just like we would with a strength coach. Right. So I think there's been that really positive understanding of it. I think there's some pretty good service going on in sports psychology. I still think it's a buyer beware kind of place, mm-hmm. but I think we're getting better service than ever. So to me, that journey is interesting and that destigmatization is important. From- <laughs> Yeah, that's another question. What, I hit what interests me? Well, I, I, I guess yeah. I was going to go a little further and say, yeah, sure. how have you seen, you know, so you, you kind of brought in right there uh, the sort of model you're talking about in Northeastern where yeah. you have an array of subject matter experts to help students develop in all aspects of their life. That holistic approach, do you feel like that was uh, – you know, kind of out there 15 years ago, even if professionals thought it was the right thing to do. And now it's pretty well accepted. Um, let's see here. I, I think there were a lot if, of, if we were to, maybe if we were to talk about a, a national governing body for a sport, they, if their goal is to win Olympic medals, they're going to put the yeah. best professionals in front of their, of, of their yeah. athletes and in, in order to help them be best prepared to win an Olympic medal or a, a world championship. 
So those sorts of models existed, but it really was kind of thrown off into Olympic sports. And now it seems like it's not only in pro sports, but in a lot of colleges too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, yeah, it's always been out there in my mind, kind of in theory. Mm -hmm. And I think as the quality of service has improved, it's been able to be adopted better. One, because I think even years ago at the Olympic level, there was always a few people working out there, but we've gotten better at what we do there. So now it's almost all Olympic teams say this is a need. Mm -hmm. Um, I think getting out to college sports and even lower levels, right, club teams, I think a lot of that, again, is people understanding or good leaders, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd argue a lot of the people that end up bringing me or hiring me initially are coaches that on the surface, you'd be like, are you kidding me? That's an old school coach. Right. But they're old school coaches that are learners Mm -hmm. that say, if this is a growth moment in a slightly different voice, you know, we can get better. So I think there's this, this learning coaches and learning departments that are starting to incorporate these things really well. So to me, it's a a curiosity, a humbleness um, and a dropping of ego to say this serves people well. And so where do you, where do you see the, where do you see the field going? What, what would you say in the next, you know, five to 10 years, presuming, you know, some sort of normal resumption of sport yeah. uh, locally and globally, what's on the horizon? Wow. So you're getting to one of my favorite questions, having done this so long. So I think so often we think about sports psychology as, Hey, the, the, the mental game person that sits down with the individual athlete. Uh-huh. Um, that makes sense. I, and it might just also be my bias and interest in where I'm at career wise to me, using it to shape cultures and leadership behaviors is almost even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, because a, if we think about a university setting that creates almost a more scalable model, right? If I can help a coach and brainstorm well with coaches, right? I find myself doing a lot of coach round tables. It trickles down performance mindset a little bit better, mm-hmm. right? It gets mm-hmm. away from, Hey, here are the three motivational quotes I heard. They make sense. Let's use them and makes it more robust. So I really think this being able to serve cultures and systems so things can trickle down better, I think is a really powerful future a of the field, but also for departments, right? I I'm a realist. I, I don't think an athletic department needs to have a million sports site people on staff. I think they need a couple people that can help work with the coaches and work with the athletes and then also make referrals over to student health when appropriate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think educating departments and helping to departments flow, I think is really powerful. Um, I'll share a, I was asked many years ago by um, it was a, a school leader once and said, Hey, what are you doing around here? And somehow it just kind of slipped out of my mouth. I said, I I think a little bit of my job is to be the grease that keeps the wheels flowing Hmm. around sports performance. Hmm. And I remember she, she sat back, she goes, I really like that. You know, I kind of help people come together and see the world similarly, right? Coaches and athletes. Right. Can we communicate well, you know? And I think that to me is a really powerful future of the field. There's um, some nice research on this idea of organizational behavior stuff in sport and that being a great role for someone that understands the social emotional side of performance. So that would be my answer. I think it's my passion. I think it's good for my field. I think it's actually good for schools and communities as well. 
And uh, I, I think those are all well said. And it's interesting to see as, you know, kind of the, the, the larger world of sports science continues to evolve. And we we're now seeing uh, team video with incorporations of certain, um, you know, biometric markers. So you can now, you know, I've seen demos of video that some uh, NBA teams are using where they're, they're watching X and O video of a game, but it's also got all of the heart rate data um, on the screen at the same time. Are there ways to incorporate some of the, uh, I would say, maybe less tangibles around mental performance, around kind of team culture? I've, I've heard, always heard whispers that some Premier League teams actually do evaluate um, kind of emotions and reactions on fields. Have you heard about that? Is that something that's coming down the pike? So I'll give you a yes, right? It's um, <laughs> And I say this, again, you're going to learn a lot about me where I'm eclectic. I try and learn from all ends where technology and how do we use analytics well, I do mm-hmm. think is a mental game thing. Um, I think it requires a couple pieces, though. I think it requires someone to have a strong enough background to understand are the analytics we're looking at make sense for mental, emotional stuff? Because mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you, you know, I think we all know in this day and age, it's so easy to grasp numbers, but are we grasping the right ones and understanding what we're looking at? I think that's important. Um, from a marker standpoint, and all of the biofeedback stuff makes sense, right? Biofeedback has been powerful and important in sport since the 70s, right? Whether we're looking at heart rate monitors or whatnot, it's interesting when we get to heart rate monitors, I will every now and then suggest to an athlete, oh, you did that on the bike to make sure you hit your training zone. Are you, are you using your heart rate monitor when you're sitting around to see if you can actually bring your heart rate down? Right. You know, right. and I think these are powerful spots where you can learn a lot. So um, with one of the hockey teams I work with, they put heart rate monitors in all of their players during practice. And every now and then I'll stare at the screen And I'm more curious what it looks like between drills, because these are the skills you need to develop, whether it be tennis, squash, hockey is, can we get it up? And do we have the mental skills to bring it down? So I think taking a worldview of where is this stuff playing in the mental game, we can use it well. Um, As for markers, sometimes it's having, again, I'll go back to a good coaching staff, a good sports science staff to say, what is it valuable for us to look at? So, um, mm-hmm. I will, if I having the opportunity with teams, I'll say, do you mind putting me on your, your video feed and letting me see the post game videos? It's really interesting what I look for as opposed to the coaching staff often. Um, so it's interesting tennis, right? So that's one of my mm-hmm. background mm-hmm. and, and I, uh, I've had the good fortune. I had a young man that, you know, he's, he's been on tour and whatnot. So the USTA gets, takes videos of them all day long at the training centers everywhere. And I said, can you send that to me? Sent it to me with the whole USTA's analytics package. Did you hit mm-hmm. everything down the middle or whatnot? I said, I'd like to see video of what you're doing between points. And his jaw dropped. He said, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Everyone else looks for what's going on during the point. I'm like, yeah, I want to see what goes on in between. So I think if you have a good collaboration, the data there, you can almost ask the right questions and look for the right stuff. Like I'll look at things as ridiculous and simple as, are your shoulders up around your ears during stress? Or do they look mm-hmm. normal? Right. Um, you just need to know what to look for and how to kind of market. We can do that in all these video things these days. You can market every time those hit the clip. 
It, it's so funny you you mentioned that because one of the concerns is we've talked with coaches about what um, you know what our what our new world might look like, which is that there may be I would say a lot less coaches attending um, club sporting events in person. You know, so there may be a, a let's say a soccer tournament in Florida, and there might be more people just buying the video package as opposed to going in person. Yeah. Coaches have a lot of concerns about that because. They, they generally know when they go to an event that, you know, here are the 7, 10, 30 kids they want to see play, but they also know that they're playing at a level that, you know, that they'd be welcome on our team. They're going to watch the interactions they have with teammates, the interactions they have with coaches. How do they react to positive moments in the game and negative moments in the game? How do they, uh, you know, how do they interact with the officials? Are they someone who takes on a, a composed leadership role or are they someone who really loses their mind? And, um, I've had that 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 line of of conversation with a number of our coaches just thinking um you know through through that in-person interaction it's a lot of what you're talking about these tennis players so um it's we're, we're all nosing around the same things I think yeah I think it's it's right it's so critical when I think of any of the recruiting tapes of course they look good right it's almost one of those things where I say when you go onto a website for anyone selling something people only put on testimonials that say good stuff they don't mm-hmm. go well Adam right. was only okay at his job <laughs> yeah. but I still liked him so I think you want to be really good at looking and listening I think that's something I do in my job but everyone needs that looking and listening skill because that's where you get the gold well, Adam, this has been fun. I really appreciate you coming on, and certainly uh, we'll we'll have you back again sometime. And I I, I hope that your uh, your isolation continues to go uh, smoothly and safely. And uh, we we can't wait to have you back on campus sometime soon. Uh, thank you so much, Drew. Roll dance, right? Right. Thanks to Adam Naylor. This has been Conversation in the Coop. Remember, for all your Trinity Sports information, go to bantamsports.com. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>